So welcome to the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Uh, I'm Tony Bond, curator of the show and head curator of something. And um, I'm really here to, to welcome Barbara Dawson. Um, there have been a lot of lenders, 37 different lenders around the world. Um, but one of the kind of underpinning things about this exhibition for me was the relation of the studio to the work and the kind of materiality that finds its way from the studio floor into the pictures. And amongst that, of course, all the materials, the photographic materials, what, 1,500-odd photographs and uh, what, sort of 5,000-odd other objects uh, in the studio, which are absolutely fascinating. I, I spent four days on two trips going through all this material, um, which they had beautifully catalogued on the computer. Um, and I was writing down, you know, whatever it was, FB one two seven A B C and D, and I and after four, I looked at my list and I thought I have no idea what this refers to anymore. I completely lost it. Um, and I spoke to Margarita Kapok, who was uh, curator at at the Hugh Lane Gallery, and said, "Look, actually, Margarita, yeah, you know it. Um, would you mind putting it together, working it through with Joe Shepard, the the conservator, because some of the things I picked probably can't travel and so on, um, and, and then write." the catalogue essay, and she seemed quite pleased, actually, Barbara. Um, but Barbara is the person who, as director of the Hugh Lane Gallery, the City Gallery in Dublin, uh, actually negotiated with the estate, and I'm sure she'll tell you how all this happened, but how she actually uh, was the one who enabled that studio to survive, because um, I don't think the Tate was particularly interested. Um, it wasn't going to stay in England. Uh, it had to had to go on, and Barbara actually negotiated with the estate to make sure that it was perfectly preserved and ended up in Dublin, which is lovely because that's where Francis started out, and uh, where he, in spite of things he said about never going back, he had lots of good friends and relatives and did indeed own his Irishness in many ways. So it's wonderful to have Barbara here now. We had Margarita here at the beginning of the exhibition. Um, Barbara gave a wonderful talk the other night in our the other day in our symposium uh, because she told me she was getting a paper in Europe about bacon and, and food. And we thought, well, we haven't got one of them. Um, and in fact, I didn't even know it was possible. But, you know, not only uh, was it perfect, she segued backwards and forwards between the work and the food and the images in Beaton's sort of, you know, antique books, beautifully coloured photographs, really unusual, um, and, and, and included all kinds of images which actually crop up in the paintings as well. So that was a, a wonderful and unexpected talk which um, brought a whole new layer of sensuality into the experience of Bacon for me. And she's here tonight to go back and talk about that whole experience uh, of transferring that extraordinary studio, which I think Francis says, for me, chaos breeds images. And he wasn't messing about. I mean, he really felt that he could not work outside of that context where he was wading knee-deep through photographs, objects that he picked up and used to press paint onto the canvas. Uh, it was a breeding ground of imagery and ideas. Um, and thank God it survives. Thank you, Barbara. So, Barbara, please come up and talk. Thank you very 
much, uh, Tony, um, and thank you all very much for coming uh, this evening. Uh, I'd first of all like to congratulate Tony on this superb exhibition, Francis Bacon's uh, Five Decades. It's, it's really a wonderful exhibition. And as I said on, on Saturday, you know, meeting and greeting old friends, but then seeing some paintings that haven't been wheedled out of museums or private collections for many, many decades. So congratulations to him. And to Makushla Robinson, who's the exhibition's curator for the really excellent exhibition and also catalogue. And I'd like to also thank Josephine Tuma, who is public programs coordinator, senior co coordinator for inviting me down and organising um, everything around uh, uh, the, the lectures and the symposium. Um, as uh, Tony says, it's very difficult to persuade a city council to spend millions on a sort of um, an Anglo-Irish homosexual drunken artist <laughs> and to bring all of the material uh, to Dublin. But actually, that's what did happen. And as well as me, I have to also congratulate um, the city manager at the time was John Fitzgerald, who ran with it, and also the council, which, which, which backed it. And it is quite, quite an achievement. Francis Bacon was born in Dublin, in Baggett Street, uh, in 1909, and he grew up in County Kildare until the age of 16. Um, his, his parents were um, Eddie, Eddie Bacon, um, who was actually born in Adelaide, and his mother was Winifred Firth from Sheffield. Um, they loved hunting, and he came after he retired from the army, he came to Ireland and sort of set up as um, a trainer uh, in um, in Kildare, which is great racing countryside. And um, despite Francis Bacon saying that he was a failed, hopeless trainer, he actually had a great horse, which won the Irish um, Grand National at Ferry House, and it was called Repeater the Second. And I loved the name. I thought that was really <laughs> good, Repeater the Second. But um, so um, when I became uh, a director of the gallery of the Hugh Lane in the 1990s, um, the gallery was going through um, a difficult period. It had kind of its identity had kind of shifted. Um, it wasn't quite sure of its direction and its focus. And indeed, its funding was quite quite me mediocre at the time and meagre, really. Um, so I, I thought that we needed something really to kind of catapult back into, into a position both locally and internationally that Hugh Lane had started. I mean, Hugh Lane was the owner of La Musico Tuileries by Manet. He's the owner of uh, Courbet. He's the owner of uh, Lavacour Under Snow by Manet. All of these he bought for Dublin and presented to the collection in 1908. So I, we were, I was looking for something to really kind of kickstart the, the gallery again and reposition it and reimagine its relevance as we approach the end of the 20th century. Uh, it would have been very nice to get a big collection of uh, contemporary work, but that wasn't really coming about. And so I looked around at association um, and Francis Bacon, I knew, had uh, been born in Ireland. But when you looked at it, believe it or not, even in the 90s, everybody said, oh, well, he kind of left it when he was five, didn't he, or seven or something like that. And actually, he didn't. He didn't. He, li he lived in Ireland until he was 16. And on um, Saturday, I was just talking about his friend Doreen Maloney, who spoke about them playing tennis together in Nace, which is a town in County Kildare. And he was a good tennis player. And John Edwards backed it up. He said, yes, Francis used to play tennis. But she most uh, tellingly said that they were in Salins, which is a tiny little village on the way to Nace, that they would stopped. And he persuaded her to go into uh, a butcher shop with them. And he was always fascinated by the carcasses of meat. 
and you know you always thought meat and if you look at this exhibition if you look at some of the paintings in this exhibition for instance um uh, the 1954 uh, pope with the the um sides of beef behind him but i'm not going to talk about food at this i promise you tony but the meat behind him so there was this sort of slight nihilism about him you know man is meat meat is man and he said that um when he when he grew up in ireland he said you see he, he was kind of dramatic and theatrical as well and he sort of said um if i can find it now because i always when I do this he said you know I grew up in I grew up in Ireland and um um, you, you see, I was terribly like I was born in Ireland, and as my father and mother were both Protestant, they, um, as it were, had to protest against Catholicism, and so we had to go to church and all that. I mean, you know, dramatic. But he said he lost his faith completely when I was seventeen. He began to read Nietzsche and things, and I remember seeing a lump of dog shit on the pavement and thought, well, there it is. That's how our life is, unless you want to make it remarkable, and so that was. That is Bacon and Francis Bacon. So um, then moving on swiftly, um, I knew that John Edwards, Francis died in 1992 and John Edwards inherited his entire estate. And I knew there were paintings that hadn't were in the collection of John Edwards that hadn't perhaps been seen or exhibited. So I was introduced to John Edwards and I sort of proposed the idea of an exhibition. Brian Clark, the executor of the estate, was also very much involved, sent over some catalogues, sort of started to beef up on the Irish element of it also. He had shown once before in 1964. And so that sort of uh, began a discussion and um, then I went over a couple of times to London of course to meet them and then I was introduced to them and I, I was brought to the studio and this was so I was brought to the studio of, of Francis Bacon and this is the outside of the famous Seven Rees Muse studio and John Edwards is at the top of the stage. That's Francis saying, he came here so I've been here for more than 20 years. That was at the time so obviously he was 81. And then he said, from the moment I saw this place, I knew I could work here. And he really loved working there. And this is a, a photograph by Peter Stark. And you see him at the top of the stairs. But when I was at the bottom of the stairs, it was so steep that I actually thought that um, John Edwards said, would you like me to help you up? And I thought, God, if an 80-year-old artist can get up the stairs, I can too. So um, we went up the stairs and we went into this studio. And I went, oh, my God. We'd all heard about Francis Bacon's studio, but we went... Oh, my God. It really was looking like inside the artist's head. I mean, it was incredible. The artist had died in 1992, but because he was... Um, the place had taken on its own um, identity. And now that the protagonist had left, it actually had a new identity and kind of held, as if time had stood still, it had kind of held a certain um, poise and a certain personality. And as it was over, it was upstairs over a garage, there was a circulation of air, so it wasn't mouldy or dusty or, you know, damp. And there's a wonderful smell of turpentine white spirits and paint that's just so exciting. These are the, he, he ne there was no palette in the studio. We never found a palette. He used the walls to mix paints. And if you see up here, obviously he often had a, a, a brush with, with a load of paint on it. So he kind of threw it at the ceiling and, and the walls to the right here. And um, it would offload some of the paint because obviously too much on the brush. Uh, so it was the floor, as you could, oh, yeah, let's just go back there for a second. The floor was just full of material. And this famous circular mirror is also photographed in his Cromwell Place studio in the 1950s, and he probably brought it with him. He was, for a time, an interior designer in the 1930s. And in... Um, 
uh, studio, there was an article on him in 1933 and a circular mirror appears there. This one has got all this oxidization that you happen in a mirror, you see. And I think probably Francis liked that because the whole idea of decrepitude and decay certainly does come into the work. On the easel was this last painting, an unfinished self-portrait of the artist. And I remember on the floor there was a, an, an article on George Michael, you know, the singer with Wham. And, or no, yeah, Wham. And it was said at the time that George Michael liked always to have his portrait photographed. He liked to be always photographed from the left because it was more, more um, he just felt it was a, his better side. So I was quite amused at th that this was sort of the, the left side, the left port, uh, uh, view of Bacon from the, from the left. Um, it's fascinating in itself, and uh, we had a marvellous talk from um, Tony on, on Saturday about you know, uh, Br Bacon's brushwork and you know, his technique and, and uh, what he had observed. But in this work, what I thought was very interesting is how well modelled this part is, the head, and then the rest is obviously very sketchy, and it is quite difficult to work out what, what else was uh, going to happen in such a painting. The door was beautiful, paint spattered, and so. So I said, oh my goodness, this is amazing, and I was so honoured to be there, and and I thought, well, I don't know what you're going to do with that. Um, I, and the, he said that the Tate didn't want it, and I was saying, well, you better do something with it. But I said, the only way that it would have any relevance now that we're approaching the end of the 20th century and really the artist studio had moved on to not the place of being, you know, peripathetic artists, laptops, Daniel Buren, you know, the, 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 the role of the, art, of the studio and the artist's work. And all of these uh, critical theories were abounding. So it was going to be a challenge. And the only real way to make this any way successful would have been for them to preserve it exactly as it was. So therefore, we might still understand something about the process of painting by one of the greatest figurative artists of the 20th century. So I was chatting away and telling them exactly what they should do and go and get people and advisors and they turned around and said, well, would you like it? And I went, oh my God, oh my God, okay, let's have a look at this again. So um, anyway, we, we, yes, we said we, said we would like, um, I thought we should have it. I thought it'd be a marvelous thing to do. Now, this is 1997 when Francis Bacon's paintings made less in London than anywhere else in the world, when he wasn't really the figure, if, if you can just go back, he wasn't the figure that he is today. And the material was considered a heap of rubbish, a heap of detritus. And what were you going to do with that? So it was a gamble. It was a, quite a gamble because we weren't allowed to go through the material and then decide whether or not we wanted it. We either had to say we wanted it or we didn't. So negotiations went on and on. And I remember I was down in um, Bilbao in the Guggenheim when um, a call came through from Brian Clark. And he said, now, it's like this, Barbara. It's either going to go into a skip or are you going to do this? <laughs> so uh, so we, did, we did it because really it is... Not only is it very specific and particular to Francis Bacon, but it also is elucidates a certain type of artist or a certain time in art history when when the studio and the place it still is for certain artists was crucial and so important to the work because it's the only place where public judgment is suspended in advance of of the of making an artwork. It's the only place where the public persona can be shared and the private. Uh, person can come forward and there is a nervousness 
every time you make a great painting, every time it's loaded, can you go back into your studio and make that mark again? Can you, can you, can you create a work? Can you um, um, make, an, make that painting again? And this is always the, the trouble and the, and the vulnerability of the artist. He liked that. He's talked about the artist's studio isn't the alchemist's study where he searches for the philosopher's stone. It's more like where he stopped imagining some ex unexpected phenomena might appear. Um, quite the opposite fact. In other words, Francis Bacon was making visible what he saw. He was making visible what exists in the world and, and uh, that he saw, and he was putting it in on with paint on the canvas. The studio was full of wonderful... This is... Uh, Edward Muybridge, the great uh, photographer, uh, pioneering photographer, who has booked the human body in motion, uh, the human figure in motion, uh, you know, revolutionized our, our understanding of the human body and indeed of the horse. He was the person that discovered that the horses, when it gallops, does actually have all its hoofs, feet off the ground. This is um, Giacometti here, and this is this table full of lumps of paint and all sorts of detritus. Um, here you have all uh, other imageries of, uh, images of work that Francis hoovered up and used as part of his image bank. Um, you have even, a f this is a photograph of Lucien Freud. You have um, a crime scene there. You have um, some, a, a dance there. Um, there's a reference, that's Philip IV up there, the, the Velasquez portrait of Philip IV. Um, so like all sorts of different material, so it wouldn't be very easy to categorize this. This table I come back to was piled high with, um, as you can see, rubbish and <laughs> uh, empty tubes, uh, and then these are very important. These are the cloths that he used to make the marks, particularly in the 60s, beginning in the 60s, where you see across the portrait of uh, someone like Elizabeth Rostron, um, they, this kind of... If you like um, slashed image or striated image across the face, uh, we found uh, some cashmere jumpers, two dressing gowns, uh, and in the studio, which were obviously oh, and corduroy trousers, of course. Uh, so you know, it, so I remember there was um, a conference uh, of uh, international conference of conservators in Dublin in the in the Hugh Lane. And uh, I remember just opening the conference, welcoming them all, and asking if anybody had any opinion on how we would take this away because these walls here were not like uh, frescoed walls they weren't prepared so they were just like cheap um, partition walls like what you plaster and uh, and wood and so we said does anybody know anything about this and they all just turned around and said well good luck <laughs> so a fantastic um project manager who's Mary McGrath who was a is, is a conservator and Mary I, I, I sort of um gave Mary my, my vision and my idea and my ambition and plan for, for the Hugh Lane. And Mary said, OK, right. First of all, we need archaeologists. And so she then found uh, we have great teams of archaeologists in Ireland. Uh, there's a lot of archaeology to be done. And so they're always, you know, on it. So Ed Donovan on the right with, with the team started to do, he did survey drawings of the studio. Three, uh, three survey drawings, three layers. They went, anybody an archaeologist here, you know, you got three layers down. And then they made elevation drawings. And I said, this is great, love. This is absolutely marvellous. But the one thing is, you're going to have to put it all back. Everything. 
or if not everything, you know, you have to know where everything is. And they went, oh, God, okay. Because they do sometimes put some things back, but usually they take it out and preserve it and everything else. So I said, you're going to have to put everything back. So then they started and this. I'll show you some of the uh, elevation drawings there. And um, I don't know why that's there. So uh, why is that there? Well, anyway, uh, that, that, that's also just showing the studio. And so this is what ha started to happen. So the archaeologists did the elevation drawings. Then the curators came in and took out each, each item, uh, which was numbered RM, Rees-Muse 98-1A. Rees-Muse 98-1A-1. I, I promise you it was low-tech, and I'll just show you the... the um, uh, journals that were done. Yeah, I had a fantastic young team from Ireland, uh, archaeologists, curators and conservators, and they went through the place and it was just absolutely marvellous. So they kind of took it out like locusts and you see here are the, elevate the drawings of... And then this is now, mm, this is the top layer and here's the door into the studio and Francis's um, easel was there. This end was tended to be kind of um, the dump end. He used to put uh, the Magimix, the empty bottles of Krug or the boxes for the Krug was, and then the layer. So all of these were um, fields. And so uh, one would be, and then there was one A and that was a field. So it was one A1, one A2, one A3 until it got to 30. And then it was two and two A. And then, so it was really, I was absolutely fascinated. And then, so you see the, the layers as they go down. You, you see, you just have to pretend you understand everything, but you just tell people what you really want at the end and then they, they bring it forth. And then you see here, um, can't, well, let's see if I can read it here. It's just, just to show you. Uh, a colour photograph of two men at a, at a doorway. Um, and then you see a feature number one, one here. And then feature number one, seven there, feature number one, two. And then the condition. Well, the condition now, I mean, if you, if you got a conservative report on the condition of Francis Bacon's studio, you'd never get it through. Because in, in Florence, I've just finished an exhibition, Francis Bacon and the um, Existential Condition in Contemporary Art in the Palazzo Strozzi. And uh, Cinzia is the conservator there. And she went, oh, cattivo. Like everything was appalling, not just poor condition. Like the photographs were appalling. But it's just so valuable and so important. And we had some people from the Getty come over a couple of years after it opened. And they asked me, um, uh, how many people did we have working on after this? Well, I said we had about 15 people take it out. And we had four people do the database and compile it. And, I, and she looked at me, four. And I said, four good people are far better. And the other thing that Margarita told me to say, because she said, Barbara, it was the best thing you did, was I said, no interpretation. You're not allowed to go, oh, uh, well, that's now more important than that, or the mirror is more important than the, the brushes, because that would have slowed everything down. And interpretation was getting in the way of the authenticity of the whole project. So it was very difficult for people, but they weren't allowed. They just had, to, it was almost like um, robots, just taking it out and doing it. So the interpretation, I said, would come later when you had time to do scholarship. You do not have time to do scholarship now. Um, we weren't too sure whether we were legally, um, we have an ambassador here today, but we were legally um, allowed to do this. We didn't know whether it had been preserved. And Chris Smith, I thought, was the Minister for Culture in London, in England at the time. I always thought he was going to come around in a big black Mariah. So this had to be moved fast. And, and, but it also had to be done that way, because then otherwise it would be my interpretation of this one. It would be Tony's or McCushla's and, and, and that should, has to come later when, when it was out. So this is Gwen here wrapping up uh, the mirror and, and the floor. It was kind of 
poignant. We found this uh, in the studio, it was a cutout, you see. We'll come back to cutouts later. It looks like a portrait of uh, John Edwards that Gwen is showing there. And we found this great work that we sh I showed on, on Saturday. It's an unfinished work from the 1960s and we call it untitled, you know, uh, seated figure on dappled carpet. So that was terribly exciting. It also shows it was almost finished by Bacon. And as he said, with the panels, he says he, he puts the panels in to cut down the image to scale, to kind of bring it down into the, into the painting. So we were all very excited by that. So there they are, that's Ed, you know, ironing board or anything we could get to wrapping up all of the items. And that table there was a nightmare, so we just wrapped it up completely <laughs> uh, uh, to bring it over to, to, to Dublin. And uh, when we brought it to Dublin then, we had to, uh, we had four people on it with them, working on it with the masks because it was very dusty and um, we got a lot of things out of that table and then they put it all back together again. They were really marvellous. Now this was a big challenge. This is a beautiful wall. I don't know anybody who has seen the studio in Dublin and the, the relief like it's is that thick on it in parts and I just thought this was absolutely marvellous but how on earth were we going to get this out? I mean this was absolutely scary. So what we did was uh, Mary McGrath uh, uh, project manager um, she coated it in some preservative and put layers of conservation paper and then layers of, of, of um, uh, sponge or you know rubber and sponge and then affixed it with you know metal ties they cut out the back because the, that was going into his kitchen area and then they cut out the floor and they dropped it into the garage below and we were terrified and then it, it came to Dublin and it took us three years to reconstruct the studio. And when we were unwrapping this, I was absolutely terrified because it, I thought it could have cracked and just fallen apart. But it didn't, which was great. So that's, that's that very dramatic. And that was, so you go from chaotic, I think they, it's, it's quite kind of poignant, isn't it, when you, when you see it empty like that. And then this, this, was, a, this was pretty difficult to, to, to get out because that was next door. This was terribly easy because this was just um, a partitioned wall. Um, he moved in in 1961 and stayed there till his death in 1992. And there you are. It's the finished studio. So we took the dust. Dust is very important as we know uh, in, in the painting here uh, he, of Eric Hall. Uh, he uses the dust. He says it makes an excellent grey flannel suit, uh, a texture. And, uh, and, then the, and then out of there, you went into the kitchen and the other area. This was cut out. He had this, um, we found even the application to have a, a skylight um, in the studio. It faces east-west. And in the summer, actually, we noticed when we were there that it did get very hot in the, in, in, during the day. So maybe that was another reason why he went off to Wheeler's, Greens, the Ritz, anywhere, or even the colony room. And so um, in 2008 was the centenary of... Uh, 2009 was the centenary of his birth in Dublin. And so we, we, when, we, when we managed to, we opened the studio in 2001 and subsequently every exhibition of Bacon had material from the studio. So it became a really, it, it really became very famous very quickly. And, um, and so quickly that everybody else was much more organized than we were, in a way. So um, the Kunsthistorische in, in um, Vienna had a great exhibition of Bacon, and he would have loved that, hanging beside Velasquez and Bacon's, or Rembrandt's and all of that. And then the Beiler, then the Met, then... Um, so we thought, what, what are we going to do in 2009? So I thought that what we are going to show, we're going to show an enormous embarrassment of riches of the, the studio material because that's because we can. 
uh, you know, because we can. And then the next thing I thought was, well, let's try and look at it like Bacon looked at it. Like Bacon, and, um, you know, it is great to see it. It's here, it's in properly, and we wouldn't allow it any other way. It's just here in its vitrines. But he obviously was holding things like that because there's always paint accretions, what we call, you can see the thumb marks of the paint. So he's obviously painting at the time. So I thought that it was important that we get this visual, this image, to, to look at the work uh, that way. And we called it uh, Francis Bacon, Terrible Beauty, uh, from September... Uh, no, Easter 1916 um, by Yeats. He loved Yeats. In his last um, in his last interview, uh, Bacon said that he he loved Yeats. He thought Yeats was a great poet. But I thought it was very telling. He said Yeats made himself a great poet, and Bacon made himself a great artist. You know, I mean, you can be afflicted with talent. Bacon couldn't draw, but he was determined to do something remarkable. And that's really the the fire in the belly that pushes you to the you know the the over the final uh, fence. So this is the material from the studio of photographs. It's a selection of over 1,500 photographs we had in the studio. So what about the photographs? Well, the photographs are by a very famous uh, photographer called John Deacon. And John Deacon's fa claim to fame, as well as being a great photographer, was that he was fired twice by Vogue magazine. I mean, <laughs> he's the only one, I think, that managed to do that. But um, he was very friendly with Bacon. And at the end of the 50s, early 60s, Bacon, um, he had begun to start paint portraits, but he didn't like um, people sitting to him because people be were shocked at what he described as the defacement he did to them or the damage he did to the image of them. So he, pr he thought he'd get to uh, paint from photographs. So he commissioned John Deacon to, um, uh, to uh, take photographs of, this is his lover, George Dyer. And we have an enormous amount of photographs of George Dyer. So we went with this, this is George Dyer here. And then this is George Dyer in the studio. Now these could have been done by Deacon or they may also have been, um, certainly might have been directed by Bacon and photographed by Deacon. But you can see all of the, and this is very, very deliberate. The, the tears and the cuts in these works were all, all sort of fed into uh, Bacon's um, preparations, compositional preparations for his paintings. Just as other people would draw, these were his drawings. Um, they may have helped him resolve a sort of a compositional um, puzzle or, or challenge to him. Uh, you know, definitely this actually was a cutout. He had this cutout and mounted on a board. This is in the exhibition here uh, uh, at the board. And then you see, this is deliberate. He wants to just get a complete emphasis on the eye. He photographed, uh, had uh, D had Dyer photographed on the street, of course. And then these also are just sort of compositionally um, uh, very focused. And very and very deliberate. He did like also to have the certain decrepitude in the work. People walked over it. He saw it decaying just as he was getting older. Uh, but also, it was it was certainly deliberate. Um, the other uh, person that there was uh, Peter Lacey, who was his lover from the the nineteen fifties, and Peter. Lacey died on the eve of his first exhibition at the Tate in 1962, um, and he died in Tangier. But then, and then the, the rest here are of George, who actually died on the eve of his exhibition at the Grand Palais, which I'll come back to later. And you see this here, this is very deliberate. If you look at the portraits of Bacon himself, this is of Bacon by Deacon. If you look at the portraits of Bacon, you can see this, this coming out. This is... Um, 
this is a very interesting one, and I've, I've chosen this because you'll see in this exhibition here several of uh, th this compositional structure in his portraits, and he uses that of, of George Dyer. Uh, and then this is a very close-up of that there. And then these are two lovely, um, uh, well, this is a triptych of George Dyer that's here, and you'll see very pronounced, he's a very pronounced uh, profile that Bacon really liked. And then this is also a wonderful triptych that's in this exhibition, and you see the uh, crossed leg here. Well, that also, the same kind of uh, pose was used later on for a portrait of John Edwards, who was the heir of Bacon and who we really officially gave us the studio. And that's a little bit of um, publicity for us. We did an exhibition with David Sylvester in uh, 2000, Francis Bacon in Dublin. But um, I, the reason I show you that is this is what we found in the studio, two fragments from Kathleen Clark's Positioning in Radiography, which was um, f first published, it was actually, th that's a 1939 edition, but it's, it's never been out of print. She's an amazing Amazing, and radiography was just introduced at the end of the 19th century, so it was frightfully new and very exciting. But you see what he's done here. He's taken the, the uh, torso of one image and put it with the legs of another, <coughs> uh, of another image and put a big safety pin between them. Quite, quite. Um, the uh, two women that uh, featured quite prominently, prominently in the photographs that we had were um, Isabel Rostorn and Henrietta Mores. And these are photographs of Isabel up here. Isabel was uh, uh, the lover and um, a muse of, of Giacometti. She was also painted by Picasso. And she was a painter herself. She has work um, in the collection of Tate in London. Henrietta Mores was um, a friend of Bacon's. Um, she sort of was um, uh, part, of that, th part of that sort of group of, bo of Bohemian set in London. She also was very uh, familiar with Ireland, and she lived in Ireland in County Kildare for quite a long time. In fact, one of my curators was babysat. He, uh, when he was young, Henrietta Moray's babysat him in Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite interesting. So these are just the close-ups. Again, they're quite beautiful. Uh, so this was it, like it was so fascinating when we got all this material because you can see here there's these deliberate folds and tears, and they're quite thoughtful in the work. And then you see something like this. This is Isabella, uh, Isabel uh, um, uh, on the street in Soho, and you see standing on the street, particularly that one up there has just derived out of that. And then these here also, crumpled and torn, but a very deliberate pose. That's a beautiful painting in this exhibition of um, Isabel uh, as well, and uh, a beautiful um, treatment of the face. And the close-up there of the red on the face is definitely made by a cloth. He probably sprayed paint or paint on one of the cloths that I showed you in the studio, and then pressed it onto the wet canvas to create that effect. Um, Henrietta Mores is, is famous for these uh, f um, paintings of her lying figure on a circular bed. Francis had a circular bed in his bedroom come living room for many years and it became quite a famous uh, circular bed. Uh, John Deacon um, was asked to photograph uh, uh, Henrietta for Francis, uh, nude photographs of her and Makushla uh, Robinson has showed a marvellous photograph of um, what John Deacon had taken of Henrietta uh, with her legs apart but looking the other way. And um, Bacon went, no, 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 that's not what I want. You know, I, wa I want them the other way around. And then, of course, she found him selling them to sailors around uh, Soho. And <laughs> so she was absolutely raging. But these, these are some of the, the 
portraits of, of uh, Henrietta that also come out of those lovely ooh, what happened there of the of those um, wonderful photographs that are in uh, in the studio that we found taken by John Deacon and you know this is also then there's um, uh, some cinema stills also that would have fed into this image bank of bacon. Continuing with photographs, of course, Lucien Freud. That's another huge bank of, of images that we have in the studio. And these show Lucien Freud on the bed and F Lucien Freud on the street in London, in Fitzroy Street. Um, I asked Lucien on many, well, I tried to get to Lucien on many occasions to see would you remember what bed it was, where it was, or anything. And Lucien just would not tell us anything. Didn't want, didn't want, to, didn't want to revisit that. But this is a um, you know wonderful uh, uh, other photograph of him, and you see the paint accretions down here. These are the really, um, uh, and so he was using that when he painted uh, Lucien. He painted, we believe, his first portrait, which is in this exhibition in 1951, was of Lucien Freud. And Freud says that when he arrived, Bacon had almost finished the painting, except for the feet, and he said it was a very good likeness. But, uh, uh, but here, this is the painting in this exhibition that uh, Tony selected. And then also in this exhibition, in the catalogue, I was fascinated. It also had been said at the time, of course, that it was, Bacon um, said it was inspired by um, an image of Franz Kafka. And uh, in the catalogue here, which I was amazed to see, it was this great image of Kafka. And then that's his uh, sister, Otila. Is it Otila or whatever? Anyway, it's his sister there, but you can see that. So, but it was quite interesting. Of, and then I also never forget that um, uh, Freud also bought Bacon's work. He, he believes he bought his first pope and he bought a Van Gogh work. Just to talk about uh, the women in that life, uh, Francis Bacon was a great friend of Muriel Belcher who owned the Colony Room, which was a private drinking club in Soho. And in London, as in Ireland, and I don't know about Sydney or Australia, there was very severe licensing laws after the war. And so... All pubs were closed between half past two and half past five in London. In Ireland, it was the same. I think it was called the Holy Hour. I don't know if it was one hour or two hours. I'm sure I'd be collect corrected later on. But So for these uh, for artists who had worked early in the morning and these dreary afternoons, as people uh, uh, recounted, these private drinking clubs were fantastic. So this is where they went. Muriel was um, a, a Russian emigre, and she and her girlfriend, Carmel Stewart, uh, ran this colony room. Um, she, she paid Bacon to bring uh, people to the colony room so that um, she would have a great clientele there. And um, David Marion, who was a friend of Francis Bacon's, who's still alive, said that Carmel, they called her melon lips because she was uh, had very big lips. She used to steal from the till and then go gambling with Francis at Charlie Chester's. So, I mean, I don't know if Muriel knew this, but she was famous. If she liked you, she called you cunty. If she didn't like you, she called you cunt. And you weren't allowed in unless she liked you. So it'd be absolutely terrifying to go in there. This is a beautiful, it's not in this exhibition, but I just showed you that I thought it was a very beautiful um, uh, portrait of, um, I think it's called Untitled, you know, figure on a, on a sofa. But this is Muriel Belcher, and you can see the very significant, you know, the par uh, hair parting there, and also the face. And it does also remind you of um, birds or aviaries, and there's a beautiful painting in this exhibition of owls, which I'd love you to see with the blue background. So also is reminiscent. So Bacon drew on anything when he was da painting David Sylvester. He was looking at, I think it was, what is he looking at? A hippopotamus, I remember, or something like that. A everything fed into his, into his image bank. 
Um, this is a marvelous painting that I had never seen before, and I was so pleased to see it in this exhibition. It's from 1945, and it's 49, and it's study uh, from the human body. Um, inspired by Moybridge, it's uh, incredibly um, full of um, uh, expectancy, tension, uh, probably sexual tension, and um, a masterful work, really, uh, really marvellous work. Very taut back, very strong round buttocks, you know, going through the, the curtain. There's a sense of um, mystery around it. There's a sense of expectation around it. It really is sort of, uh, you know, uh, full of, of expectation and tension. Moybridge was, uh, as I said, study for the human figure in motion. Uh, there were over four books were found in the studio. One, another of the same, uh, of the same publication in Bacon's uh, bedroom. I mean, from different years and hundreds of leaves from Moybridge. And he also said that he mixed up Michelangelo and Moybridge in his mind because one had the ample voluptuousness of the male nude and the other had the wonderful motor uh, movements of the human body. But you can see where this comes. So, those, so these were images. And you see here, he also had the, he pinned things onto board, obviously to help him along. This is probably deliberate, as this is definitely, I would think, deliberate to just sort of highlight an part there. Uh, then this one down here also. And then just I just put this in here because everything he drew on, these are um, x-rays of the spine and, and of the lungs. And I have an, another paper to do on lungs, but that's another day's work. So Michelangelo, we also showed uh, the artists that uh, influenced uh, Bacon. And in the studio, there were several, but Michelangelo, there was a lot of, of images of Michelangelo in the studio. And then there's a little Sura down there. Yeah, so they're very excited here at the front of it. Yeah, Sura, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ah, you're perfectly right. Now, you see, it was worth, it was worth me coming down this far. Uh, and so, actually, uh, can we read it? Actually, Michelangelo and Mybridge are mixed up in my mind. So I perhaps could learn about positions from Mybridge and learn about the amplitude, the grandeur of form from Michelangelo. So it was marvelous <laughs> what drew them together. And then we also um, credit the other artists that he actually loved, and we hung them here uh, with an unfinished painting. And that's, that's what you're talking about, Tony, isn't that painting back there? So we did it too, but we probably, yeah. Uh, so anyway, there you go. So uh, this is another room in the Hulane, and, and we're just showing the artists. Um, this is great, and, and uh, thank you very much, Makushla, for getting me the image today. This is um, Irving Penn's photograph of Bacon behind a, a portrait of a self-portrait by Rembrandt. And what he says about Rembrandt is uh, that Rembrandt's great late self-portraits, oh, he loved them, the contours of the face change time after time, a totally different face, although it has the Rembrandt look, it involves you in different areas of feeling. I mean, ever the sensualist, Bacon talks about feeling, he talks about instinct, he talks about uh, uh, images sliding directly onto the nervous system, he talks about impact, and, uh, and this was, is great. So this was pinned up um, in his studio. There are also other images of um, uh, uh, Rembrandt, and this is a 1956 image that's in the Kunsthistorische in Vienna, and this is a 19, uh, sorry, 16. 56, sorry. And this is a 1660 image 
that is in the Met in New York. Now, this is amazing. You know, um, Rembrandt went broke twice. Well, he really went broke around this time. He was he was very, very wealthy, bought a house in a very fashionable area. Does this sound familiar? And then the market uh, went down and he... Um, and he with it, in fact, and so he would die um, nine years after this was painted. But it's a marvellous portrait, and you can see much poured over by uh, Francis Bacon, who also, there's some wonderful self-portraits of Bacon in this show. And as he grew older, I mean, it was a bit of a lie, but he said there was nobody else to paint, so he had to paint himself. But of course, people, he said, they're all dying around me. But, you know, a lot of them were still, uh, people were alive, like Isabelle and Michel Larisse. But the very interesting he has portraits of himself portraits of himself self portraits with his eyes closed and uh, it comes back to rembrandt he also loved velasquez and i think that was mentioned and this was found remember the table i showed you um that we had took out we had to wrap it all up and this was found stuck to an ashtray underneath the table because there are not that many images of Velasquez in the studio, which I suppose because it was 61 and he was tired of doing the Pope series. The Pope series is the, oh, well, I was, oh, where's the Pope gone? Hmm. Did I forget the Pope? I'm, okay, there's a beautiful, there's some very beautiful Popes in, in this uh, exhibition. And you can see where he, he takes the, the um, oh, what do you call a sede, what the, 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 the the papal chair for the Bishop of Rome here, um, but he, what he creates is this, um, he turns the iconography on its head. The Pope has got glasses on. He's no longer this this uh, this figure of immense um, significance and spirituality. He's looking terrified and he's screaming out of the painting. And um, Bacon's Popes are are well known. And then later on, he said, "Oh, because this, he thought this is po this is a uh, a very much defaced image." of Pope Innocent X by Velasquez, which is in the Doria Panfili Museum in Rome. And um, he painted image after image based on this, uh, sorry, he painted painting after painting based on this image. But, um, you know, there's speculation, was it his father, the Pope figure? He had a very troubled relationship with his father. It's also certainly uh, a new order is in play, certainly with Bacon after the Second World War, you know, or. And, throwing things up on the upside down. And so it all comes out of Velasquez. And he says something very interesting about Velasquez. And I thought it was that he's, um, he talks about him being the court painter um, in, in, um, in Madrid, uh, Philip IV. And he says he controlled, he was, more, he was more controlled and more miraculous than many artists. And he said it was like walking along the edge of a precipice. He keeps it so near illustration but on the same hand, he so deeply unlocks the greatest and deepen thing, thing, deepest things that man can feel. Uh, it is amazingly mysterious. When you look at his pictures, one is possibly looking at something that is very near to how things looked then. In other words, what he's, he, he, you know, the portrait of, of uh, um, Pope Innocent X, you know, the face looks very well, but things have become distorted uh, since then. But he also, it's not just uh, illustration. He was hated the idea that he would illustrate something, that it would just look like something else. It would be, uh, oh, I can imagine, you know, oh, that's what the tree looked like. He, he certainly didn't want that. He, wanted, he, he wants something, he said, I want to make concentrated images of realism from my point of view, how, I, how he saw them. Things that come across to people in television and in photography is very violent, but all realism is violent. And that was what he was saying. You know, he wanted to make something that really slid off 
the nervous system directly onto the, onto the page. And he also said you should analyze the difference between paint which conveys uh, things directly and paint which conveys through illustration. Why does some paint come across directly onto the nervous system and other paint tell you a story in a long diatribe through the brain? So, um, but he certainly, he certainly thought in abstract terms. He didn't think in consequential, sequential, um, traditional um, storied terms. And this is another, this is Mary Teresa who married, um, who married uh, Louis XIV first. So he obviously was very interested in this, although we're not quite sure from what. Here we have uh, Van Gogh book on Van Gogh that he loved and he talked, I thought he said a lovely thing about Van Gogh, he said he's the symbol of suffering, political and social helplessness and he said even today he said the individual has no voice despite western democracy and that is uh, the study for a portrait of Van Gogh in 1957, he did a series of these very quickly for an exhibition in the Hanover Gallery in 57 and he um, in fact in some of them, not in this one, you can actually see the bare canvas at the bottom of the, of the, uh, of the paintings and sometimes it was because people came out of the gallery with red paint stuck to the back so you know we art historians go oh look at this and he's left the canvas bare there and then somebody says no actually do you know what I had a lump of it on my backside leaving the place so it was lifted off. But this is a beautiful uh, series of bacon. Then just put these in uh, figures, um, everything, boxing. He loved boxing, uh, cricket. So there's a, a, an amazing amount of material. Um, the other thing that he kept in his studio, which I thought was very interesting and poignant, was a series of um, photographs of his time at the Grand Palais in Paris. He was the first non-French living artist to be given a retrospective at the Grand Palais and it was a huge, huge honour for him. And these are photographs of the opening and uh, there's a bit tantalising now, I agree to do that. Sonia Orwell is there that you would have known, Tony. There's um, David Hockney is there. All of the, the artists are there. And it was, I mean, at the time de Gaulle came to open it. So this was the, the image. And as he, um, the, the, uh, the eve of the opening, so the reception evening, George Dyer, his lover, committed suicide, or he, well, he died of an overdose of pills and alcohol. And yet Bacon kept going. So this, I think, is an amazing photograph of him at the opening um, in uh, 71. You know, Peter Lacey dies before the retrospective in Tate in 62, and now George Dyer. And it sort of brought forward some uh, marvellous paintings, including what I showed you there, the, the uh, triptych of uh, 1972 that Tony selected for the exhibition. But also I just put this painting in because this is um, 1974 and it looks like it's not said to be George Dar. But also we have in the background here, we have one of these what we call Furies or Unemides from Iscalaise. And Iscalaise was very um, important to Bacon and if I could just say, he said, I always read the same things you see. And it is true, through the studio, he had four copies of French um, Country Cooking by Elizabeth David. He had five copies of um, uh, The Human Figure in Motion and probably had more. He had several copies of K.C. Clarke and he didn't read. He was not knowledgeable on Greek tragedy or anything like that. He just loved Iscalaise and, and the Oresteia, Orestia. 
whichever way. But he said, the things that have stimulated me are the Greek tragedies, especially Iskales, because they seem to be very, very visual. The Greeks are a very visual race. Shakespeare doesn't stimulate me from the point of, view, from the point of imagery in the same way as the Greek tragedies. I read a lot of poetry. How far it has stimulated me, how far I've been able to get images out of it, I don't really know. Never saw Aeschylus performed, ridiculous phony dresses and all that kind of thing. It's probably much better to read it so you can get it absolutely direct. So by reading, it conjures up um, visual images for Bacon. Unfortunately, I can't re read Greek, even modern Greek. But it was a fascinating book by a man called Stamford, who was a professor of Greek at uh, the University of Dublin. And the book was called Aeschylus and His Style, and it had a great influence on me. And some of the images are so startlingly beautiful in there and exciting that I go on reading it over and over again. And of course, in, in the... Um, in the tragedy, Agamemnon is chased by the Furies because he's killed his mother, who killed his father, and so he is bound to be hunted down by the Furies. But just looking back at the other image of Bacon, I mean, I don't, he was no longer really in love with George in that sense, or, you know, like, he'd moved on and George was drinking an awful lot and uh, it was becoming a bit irrita irritating for him and he tried to buy him a, a muse or get him to move on. But then again, so throughout the 70s, he paints all of these uh, paintings as if to uh, somehow assert a certain loss or a certain guilt. But very important, they're Escalés and it's not the images from Escalés, it is the actual writing of Escalés, just like... Uh, T.S. Eliot or um, W.B. Yeats. Um, the other uh, category of work we found in the studio were um, uh, cut-out canvases, sometimes slash canvases, and this is absolutely fascinating because it's called Man with Microphones. And in the first catalogue raisonné of Francis Bacon, Rosenstein and Alley, who wrote it, said that this painting actually had been painted over and that the, so it was now another painting. But we actually found it in the studio with the two cut out pieces. So I thought I'd go and sew them all up and then sell it off and just disappear. <laughs> so so uh, why did he keep this? He brought this from studio to studio. I mean, he painted it in the 1940s, you know, and so he brought it to Cromwell Place, he brought it all over the place, and he had it there with the two pieces. Um, so when we were doing this exhibition, we, um, I said, how are we going to show the slash canvases and the other works without having one of these sort of voyeuristic, oh, he was drunk and he was going home and he had, you know, making it all into some sort of, um, uh, dumbing it down really into some sort of night of dr drunken debauchery. But um, so our um, head, of ex uh, head of conservation, Joanna Shepherd, started to analyze the um, paintings and even this because he, she could by the, they cut out, she could establish how many layers of paint had been actually applied there to this. And this was, what you were talking about, this was painstakingly done. There was layer after, I think it was about 20 layers, she said layer after layer of paint on this. And then as, as he became more confident, um, it got freer. This is the 60s work. Now, this is a, definitely a cutout. This had actually been shown. But this, the back of this was absolutely scary. It was like, ripped apart but we think I think anyway it's something it could have been the third panel for um, Lucian Freud and um, Frank Auerbach and this is a double portrait of Auerbach and uh, Freud so he, he obviously didn't like it but boy did he want to make sure nobody else, <laughs> else saw it either you know so it was quite amazing 
Um, and our final category were our unfinished paintings. And these were found in the garage below um, the, uh, this, the muse downstairs, as I said, it was on the first floor. Uh, where we have some, there's some still keep coming up at times. And this one reminded me initially of uh, the Melbourne painting that you have here, you know, Study for a Human Figure 1949. But it is, it is really completely different and it doesn't have that sort of power or, or um, strength of that. But it just, not that you want to really deliberately see, but you see he was quite interested in that, that kind of movement, you know. He was looking at some, he was trying to look at something, he was trying to achieve something of movement, of going through into the striated form, in through um, uh, curtains or something. But uh, And it also has this, you can't probably see Here's quite dramatic uh, diagonal lines there. And then here, I mean, I don't know if this is ectoplasm, like from Baron Schrett van Nutzing's book, uh, The Phenomenon of Materialization. So it's full of, um, it's full of possibilities, and, I, I, and we are delighted to have these works. Um, this is um, figure turning, and I, Martin Harrison doesn't quite agree with me, but I always think that this is an example of when the paint gets clotted up and he just doesn't know, he's not moving out of. He said he loved he loved to have the maximum amount of te texture in order to have the, the greatest possibility of chance to move to move it around. And I just feel in this that something kind of got tightened. He, this is a woman and this is a, a, a woman in motion in um, Moybridge. And you see how he's painted out the background there to push her into relief. And this is what he does in his paintings. He has that um, triangle, rectangular, sorry, rectangular shape at the back of them, as he says, to cut the, the to bring the, the, uh, the illustration or the figure into scale. But that's quite interesting there. So he, this was, a, was a, a concern of his. And then there's some wonderful ones. This is figure, figure turning, 1962, of a woman. And Michel Larry says, you know, talking about, um, Bacon, and then he refers to Cucullin. I think you ref would you refer to it? One of you you refer to it, Tony. You know, Cucullin was in, in battle. He was a famous Irish mythological hero, and that he seemed to turn in his skin because he was just like he was so um, amazing at fighting. Uh, so there's certainly and skin, as you know, is one of the most erogenous zones. So there's a lot looking at skin. There's skin diseases in the studio. A lot to do with skin. And then this is the left-hand panel of Crucifixion 1965, I think. And again, you have... So you see the black, black background there. And so it somewhat could be referenced to the, the Moybridge as, a, as an aid, as an aid memoir. Um, this is also Egyptology he was very um, interested in. And he went to see his mother in South Africa. She married a third, no, second time in South Africa. And he was really pleased because he really didn't like his father very much. And his sister, Ianthi Knott, also lived in South Africa, whom I got to know quite well. But um, he, he also had this book, this weekly magazine book, with this extraordinary prince. Um, what was his name again? I never can manage this name. Um, he was um, uh, Ratotep. Ratotep. And it's, you see this face here with this moustache? Well, we have an extraordinary painting. Again, three figures. There's two paintings here with, with three figures in them, and it's very, very unusual And uh, in Bacon's um, over, and one is really two and a half. But um, this is very, very strange, and there's certainly some sort of... This is obviously John Edwards here with the face quite well modelled, and this crossed leg, although it's tucked slightly underneath, which you don't really see, but this is very much like George Dyer in the studio. This looks like Isabel Rosson because of the long hair, but she also looks somewhat sphinx-like. And I 
we can't work out him. So I thought he was a bit like Yehudi Bali in Wretched Chop here. But there certainly seems to me in this painting that there's a lot of imagery going on. There's a lot of reference going on. And perhaps just Bacon went, there's too much in it. It's just there's nothing left for chance here. It's just crowding in on top of me. And he just abandoned it. Um, this I absolutely love. Um, he, he said, I always draw on the, on the canvas. You know, he said, well, people have said I can't draw. He had an exhibition in 1938 and it was called the Transition Gallery and it was paintings and drawings by Francis Bacon. And there is like, there's evidence of it. But he said, oh, no, no, never did drawings. And he got a very bad review in the Times, in the London Times, for the drawings. So I think after that he decided he didn't want to do, do much drawing. And in the last interview with Richard Coy, he said, well, they say I can't draw. So there you have it, can't draw. That's it. And of course they can draw. This we found also, and I think this is a marvellous. And this to me, I, why this was abandoned is because there is a minimum of texture. And it's absolutely complete. There is no, there's no way forward out of this. This is absolutely, it's almost like, and it's done. You know, so, you know, there's no, there's nowhere where he can kind of move out of that. There's no, and um, it is quite an extraordinary and beautiful thing. Um, which we have in, 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 in Dublin. And, and all of this, all of these works, um, and this is again a, 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 a painting of kneeling figure from behind, which we have in Dublin and it has a slight, it, was, it wasn't, um, has a slight um, flaking down here. So it hasn't been on exhibition abroad. So a lot of people wouldn't have seen it, but we also found this um, in the, in the uh, studio downstairs in the garage. But, but all of these works, um, uh, I'll come back to that. But all of these works um, are, are, are very interesting in understanding an artist such as Francis Bacon. They, they are marvellous. They're the only thing be now left beyond interpretation now that the artist has died. His paintings, his uh, materials that he used, his photographs that he used, his paint accretions, some of these drawings. And, uh, and so it is terribly important. When we set out on this in 1997, 98, as usual, people said, oh, that was hawked around the world and people, nobody wanted it. Um, it was kind of a huge gamble for us to do. Uh, I certainly, it took me 10 years to digest what we had done, even though it was beginning to be loaded everywhere else. But the most important thing was that it just feeds into an understanding of the process that an artist goes through in making an artwork. And it is very difficult nowadays to not when you see a painting, you go, oh, how much is that worth? And of course, we want to know that. The market has always been there. B um, Rembrandt tried to make his own market and he, you know, upped the prices. But it's not the only thing you look at. It's just to remember that it, this is a human um, um, endeavour. And it's a human endeavour. And Bacon did endeavour to have some profundity in what he thought was an absolute nothingness. He said, you live, you, you know. You're born, you live, you die. You know, I mean, you make it as remarkable as you can. There's just not, there's just nothing there. Um, but he did manage to make great, profound images of the human condition, and I think was greatly affected by uh, the century in which he lived, which is known as one of the most is the most violent um, century in hi in recorded history. He lived. He was born uh, just uh, before the First World War, so he saw. Uh, experienced that in London. Then he lived through the Easter Rebellion in Dublin 1916. He lived through the Irish War of Independence, the Irish Civil War, and then the Second World War. So his figures of the, the human condition, I think, are uh, very profound. And so whilst um, 
this material is fascinating, it only can tell you, it still doesn't stop you wondering how actually the paintings finally come about. Uh, but we had this very nice, um, uh, Ambrose Clancy came uh, to see us from the Washington Post in 2001. And I must say, when I saw that up there, I went, whew, well, that's a relief. <laughs> um, and so the studio is open to the public. It's in Dublin. You're all very welcome. Admission is free still. And um, just thanks again, Tony, for inviting me for, to speak. Thank you so much, Barbara. Um, I think the world owes you and your team at the Hugh Lane a debt of gratitude for saving the studio, um, for cataloguing it so meticulously um, and, uh, and uh, sharing the contents of it with the world so that we can learn so much more about this extraordinary painter. Thank you very much for coming uh, to Australia, to Sydney, for our uh, symposium and for this lecture this evening. We're very glad that you could make it and that you could be such a terrific contributor to our exhibition. Thank you once again, Barbara Dawson. <laughs>